Today's Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. When Pharaoh let people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So, God led the people about the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out the land of Egypt, prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones from you to here. They set out to Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day and led them along the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and night. Neither the pillar of the cloud by the day nor the pillar of the fire by the night left its place in front of the people. Our New Testament reading is taken from the Gospel according to Mark. Chapter 1, we will be reading starting with verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your spirit descend upon us, our Heavenly Father, that your word may be more fully known to us this day. May these words not only instill in our minds your will, may they also motivate our actions, we pray. Amen. So last week, I understand Joyce spoke about mountains. Mountains in the Bible, they do have their prominent role. And on the mountain, it was that Jesus took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and there the glory of the Lord was revealed. There are times that we need to carry a piece of the mountain with us in the Christian life, those times when God is unmistakably real. 
Well, today we're going to talk about a different terrain. And that's the desert. The desert also plays a prominent role in the Bible. It is a key piece, in fact, in the drama of God's redemption of his people. In the Old Testament, we are told that the people of Israel were led through the desert. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert before they were allowed to enter into the promised land that God had set apart for them. After their delivery out of slavery, God's people packed all of their belongings and excitedly they were making their way finally to this place of promise that God had given to them. And this caravan of adventurers across the desert came to a stop at the waters of the Red Sea. And with nowhere to go, The people of Israel looked back and they saw the Egyptian soldiers and chariots coming after them. It was death by water or death by sword is what the alternative seemed to be. And then God opened the Red Sea and allowed his people to cross over on dry land. And then God closed the water on the Egyptian soldiers and their horses. And now the way was clear. And they could move forward to the promised land. This is an event that was celebrated for many generations following it. When the people wrote these words, sung the words, God has triumphed victoriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Subsequent generations would sing that same song. But after this grand miracle of God opening the Red Sea for them, what lay ahead for them was this, sand and rocks. And this would be their home, so to speak, for the next 40 years. The desert would be the route that they would take to get into the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey where they could truly be God's people. But it took them 40 years, a full generation, to get there. And the Bible makes it clear that God could have made it easier for them. The book of Exodus says this, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, God led them by the roundabout way of the wilderness or the desert. You know, God, you know, if he had wanted to, being who God is, could have made that journey so much easier, so much smoother. He could have, in essence, just kind of picked them up and, and dropped them into this land of promise where they could thrive as a people. In fact, if you look at a map of the, of the Holy Land and the surrounding areas, you'll see it is not a long journey from Egypt to Canaan, where they were to be established as a people. One of the experiences that I had uh, of the desert came not long after Joyce and I got married. And uh, what I noticed is that when you go to the desert, it is a place that even though you may not want to be, has a certain draw to it. Now, you know, you talk about the 
experience that the uh, Israelite people had as a way to prepare them to get into the promised land, we see the desert coming into play in the life of Jesus as well. When Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, we are told that he came up out of the water and the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven said, Behold, my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And no sooner does this great affirmation occur that the Spirit drove Jesus into that same place that God led his people. Just as the Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea and came up against the desert on the other side, where they would wander for 40 years, Jesus passed through the waters of his baptism and was led to that same place. Life is restricted there. Dry brush and lizards and hard-shelled insects. And as I was mentioning uh, before, that uh, not long after Joyce and I got married, we took this trip to Arizona, and that was our first experience of the desert. And I remember that we took, uh, you know, rented a car, and we were driving across the desert. We decided to pull the car over and uh, take a little walk in that region. And what you'll notice is that if you're in the desert, away from civilization is just how quiet it is. And all you hear is like the crunch of your feet on the sand. And if you stand real still, you can actually hear the beating of your heart. If you ever want to go to a place to be alone, the desert is that place. And of course, there is the heat, which not only beats down upon you, but it's also reflected up off of the sand. It's like opening an oven door and a waft of heat hitting your face. And there's a certain beauty about the austerity of the desert. There's something about this terrain that actually makes the sky look bluer than in other places. But it's an unforgiving, harsh place. So in 20 minutes, Joyce and I were back in our air-conditioned car and eventually to the comforts of civilization. The desert took on an even greater significance for me when I was deployed as an Army National Guard chaplain in Iraq in 2005. And while I wasn't there for 40 years, it seemed like it at times. Because in that setting, not only were you contending with the elements, harsh as they may have been, you were also contending with an enemy who knew that terrain so much better than you did. Sometimes when I consider what our soldiers went through over there, it's astounding that they have performed as well as they did. I felt I could empathize, you know, with the Israelite people in that harsh place. Uh, They had enemies that harassed them while they were traveling through the desert who wanted to pillage them for food and enemies who wanted to make sure the Israelites stayed there in the desert. Certainly we can understand why the Israelites complained about their time in this austere place. And they would say to Moses in their lower moments, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Their thoughts were that it would be better to continue to groan under the yoke of slavery in Egypt than to contend with this unforgiving terrain. And yet it was there, in this formidable place, that God was able to shape 
his people. There, God prepared them for the time when they would inhabit the land of promise that he was to give them. There, God taught them what it meant to be a covenant people. And it was while they were traversing the desert that God stopped them at a place called Mount Sinai, where Moses ascended and they received the Ten Commandments. And this further helped define them as a people. Out there in the desert, day after droning day, amidst the scarcity and the severity, God pounded it into their heads what he expected of them. There in the desert, they were stripped of any illusion that they could sustain themselves without God's help. They knew that they could only make it by trusting in God and God alone who would provide for them. People complained that food was scarce. God sent the manna. The Israelites complained that there was no water. And God told Moses to strike the rock and water flowed forth. Enemies harassed harassed God's people, that's true, but God protected them. The desert is also the place where Jesus went to prepare himself for the work God was setting him apart to do. There we are told that Jesus came to terms with what God wanted him to do and also what kind of Messiah he would be. Would he simply give the people what they wanted? somebody who would deliver them from all their troubles? Or would God make Jesus walk a lonely road that many of his followers would not understand, a road that would eventually lead him to a cross? Would he cater to the desires of his people or to the will of the one who set him apart for this hard purpose? In the desert, cut off from everyone else, Jesus had to decide whether he would do what would make him popular or whether he would follow the will of God. You know, it might surprise you to know that Jesus needed time to discern what God's purpose for his life was to be. Jesus' relationship with God, even though he was the son of God, was something that which evolved over a period of time. And I believe that in the earlier part of Jesus' life, he knew that there was something unique and special about his relationship with God that he called Father, and that God would have some kind of unique destiny for him, but it took years for him to gain the clarity that he needed. And while living as his life as a carpenter's son, working in his father's carpenter shop, God was shaping him for this calling. But the culminating moment came at his baptism when God spoke to him saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus knew without a doubt who he was. But it was not until that spirit drove him into the desert where he was stripped of everything except himself and God the Father that he came to terms with what his mission was to be. The picture that you have of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark especially is one relentlessly obedient to the will of his Father. Thy will be done. That was the driving force in the life of Jesus. Not the will of the people, not even his own will, but the will of his heavenly Father. And this tenacious obedience of Jesus had its beginnings 
in the desert. And the result was often a misunderstood Jesus, a lonely Jesus, and a suffering Jesus. You know, there's a beautiful flower that grows on a vine in the Middle East, and it's called the Gloriosa Superba. And it doesn't grow in the lush green country where the rains fall generously or on the riverbanks like so many plants in that region must grow by anchoring their roots in the moist soil. Instead, you find it in the desert at the base of a, of a cactus. It sprouts at the base and it winds itself to the top and then drapes over its thorny arms. And that's where it blossoms. That's where it becomes the Gloria Superba. Certain beauty grows only where there is deprivation, not abundance. Where there is austerity, not prosperity. So we know what this means. There are certain aspects of our faith which can only grow in the deprivation of the desert. And there we confront who we are, and more importantly, who God is, stripped of everything and everyone else. There we discern what God wants and not what others are clamoring for us to be. And notice those words from the Gospel of Mark. It says the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness following his baptism. And it isn't as though Jesus casually, you know, walked his way into this region. The Spirit drove him there with great purpose. The Spirit of God drove him to the desert, and Jesus deliberately allowed that Spirit to take him there because he knew this is what something, this is something God wanted him to do. The desert is the place where we all must go because it's where the battle of the soul takes place. We are now in the season of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter. This is the the desert season in the life of the church. And every year we set apart this time because we believe that God still does great things with his people in these kinds of places. There in the desert, God speaks to us in ways he can't otherwise because our ears are attuned to so many other things. There we are reminded we are not the self-sufficient people we'd like to think we are, and we must rely on a power greater than ourselves. During this season, we remember the desert serves a godly purpose. Amen and amen.